Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. I really am so excited that you've decided to join us for this service. You know, people come to church or watch a church service online for lots of reasons. I don't know why you decided to join us today, but here's something I do know. God is at work in your life and he's brought you here to this place in this moment to accomplish his purposes. Since people grow here, you will leave changed. I trust his work in your life. So can you. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. We have a fantastic team who work tirelessly to help people grow. We love helping you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots, whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We don't have any perfect people here. We are all in process, working through our junk, and sometimes that is a messy process. So if you can embrace our mess, we'll embrace yours, and together we'll let God work to clean it all up. And if you're just checking out Jesus and church, this is a safe place to bring your questions and doubts. We're all on a journey. And wherever you are on your journey, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, Let's join the service. Well, good morning, church. It's so good to be with you here on Mother's Day. Well, I imagine that many of you have plans to spend time with those special ladies in your life today. I want to give a shout out, of course, to my moms who are here in the room. So, hi, moms. So good you're here. Dads, I'll talk to you on Father's Day, if that's all right. While it is a special holiday today, I can't help but just to recall what I felt when I was in high school during this season. As pastor of student ministries, my mind is often wrapped up around what our students are feeling. And being that it's May, we're also close to the end of the school year. My teachers are celebrating right now. But we have several students who will be graduating, and very soon there's stress around school. It'll be over once they receive their diplomas and walk back to their seats after graduation. And this, this all gets me thinking back to when I was in school. As much as school has changed in the past 10 years since my graduation, there's still one place that hasn't changed, and it's a location that is often shrouded in mystery for students. It's a room that only a few very select students will ever see or experience, yet it is a staple in every school across the country because of how vital it is. It's the teacher's lounge. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, it's that room behind the door that every student knows about yet has never seen. A place where teachers aren't teachers anymore. No, no, no. They are just like any individual we see in a grocery store. Mr. Fletcher becomes Tom and Mrs. Billet is Sherry. And it's also where the teachers eat their lunches and they trade stories about their classes, about those certain students who become a pain. 
Now, I, of course, I was never one of those students, so I had the rare privilege of sometimes entering this mythical place. I got to observe the fresh out-of-college students who would all sit together around the table sharing stories about their day and having just a great time. Then there were the veteran teachers. I may have read too much into their facial expressions, but they would often have this sour look on their face when I like, said hi and they just kind of nod at me. To be fair, they were on their break and they're trying to get as much reprieve as they could in their limited time off. Now, many define character as what we do when no one is watching. The teacher's lounge is a place for teachers to show their true colors, not as a teacher, but as a person. Their facade of putting up with unruly children fades and they get to be people once again. No student is watching them. And this just makes me think, what would it like to take a peek behind the curtain of your life? To observe the teacher's lounge of your heart? Would you say that you are as close to God as Jesus was during his time on earth? Or would you say that deep down you are like a well-worn teacher who is just trying to get through the day without snapping at anyone? Today, we get a really cool opportunity to see what Jesus was like in a very authentic and emotional moment. Jesus, where we're picking up, was on the footstool of death. What, what was he like? What mattered to him in this moment? I've heard it said that if you listen to someone pray, you get a glimpse of what their relationship with God is truly like. What was Jesus really like? Would Jesus be the same if he had like a lounge to escape to so that he didn't have to deal with those 11 disciples who were around him? Before we get to the answer to that today, we're going to pray together and invite God to reveal the truths he has for us this morning. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, God, on this Mother's Day, let us learn not just more about you, but about our relationship with you. God, let us understand what it's truly like to have such a, a bond with you that in emotional times and any times, that God, that we feel comfortable to approach you and just talk to you. God, let the example of Jesus be an example that we all step into, that we uh, lead into this morning. Just teach us and fill us. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen. We are nearing the end of our study in the book of John with only four weeks left. But these last few weeks that we've been in study, they've been jam-packed with teaching as Jesus focuses his attention on his disciples. His public ministry is now finished and he's spending what will be his last moments before being betrayed with the 11 men who he has spent three years with. They were listening to him, following him, and learning from him. And the emphasis of John's gospel has been to show that John, or that Jesus, John's gospel, that Jesus was truly the son of God. With that kind of parentage, you'd expect God and Jesus to be pretty darn close. Close enough to have conversations at any moment about anything. Well, as it turns out, that's exactly how tight God and Jesus are. We are called to have that close of a relationship with God as well. And we do this through a practice we call prayer. As followers of Jesus, we are invited to pour our hearts out to God, not to gain his attention. We, we already have that. 
but to form a relationship. God is always listening to those who believe in him. And in popular media, it's common for people who do not have a relationship with God to use prayer as like a last resort to reach out to some higher power to intervene in like any situation. And as comical as this portrayal can be, it kind of undermines the point of prayer. We don't pray to simply get things from God. We pray to foster a relationship with God because there is only one true God, the God of Abraham, who is known as Yahweh. He is living and he is active and he is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere all at once. So, of course, he hears prayers that are directed to him with it, for those who have an obedient heart. And we know from the Gospels that Jesus was a man of prayer. He'd often go away to spend time alone with his father in prayer. And recorded in the scriptures, we have at least five to six prayers of Jesus that are all around like one to two verses long. The prayer we are looking at today, it's a full chapter long. It's actually the longest prayer that we have recorded in the Bible of Jesus. So Jesus is going to talk to his father about three things that are near and dear to his heart. The first is a prayer for himself. The second is a prayer for his disciples. And the third is a prayer for the church. And starting back in chapter 14, Jesus has been preparing the disciples for what is to come next. That Jesus, as he had told them many, many times before, is going to experience one of those, the most brutal, difficult, and painful deaths that a human, human ingenuity has ever in, invented. Crucifixion. He will be beaten, whipped, and nailed to a cross because of love. His love for his father, his disciples, for you, for me, and the church. To pay the debt of our sins by being the ultimate sacrifice on the cross and rising from the dead three days later to defeat death once and for all. So if you would, this morning, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. If you have a paper Bible, that's great. If you have an app on your phone, that works great too. And so chapter 17, as you're turning, is the capstone of his time with his disciples, and he chooses to spend this time in prayer. John chooses to include this prayer that Jesus prayed on the road to Gethsemane rather than the prayer of anguish in the garden. You know, take, the, take this cup from me, God, that prayer that we find in other Gospels. While this prayer may not sound overly emotional on the surface, we know that Jesus is dreading what is ahead of him. In his pain and emotion, he responds to this emotional crisis in the way that is most natural to him. He begins with a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with his father. So this morning, here in the room and online, I invite you, just for a second, just to close your eyes. And let's just imagine that you are on the road to Gethsemane with Jesus. It's nighttime. You just celebrated Passover with Jesus, so your belly is feeling full, but your heart is anxious. During dinner, it was revealed that someone in your circle is a traitor and is about to betray Jesus to those who want him dead. You're dismayed. You're confused because Jesus keeps talking about leaving you. In your mind, this isn't how things are supposed to play out. Isn't Jesus the Messiah, the one who will save the people of Israel? The Messiah can't die. But as you're walking, this is what he tells you. But the, the time is coming. 
Indeed, it is here now when you will be scattered, each one of you going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You can open your eyes now if you haven't already. While Jesus tells his disciples that they should have peace because Jesus has overcome the world, it's probably not what is happening deep in their hearts. He tells them that they will be scattered. And even though they had spent, even though they had spent these past three years together, if that isn't a troubling pro- prophecy, I, I don't know what is. Their unity is going to be temporarily broken. So what are they going to do? You see, by observing the responses and reactions of the disciples while Jesus is suffering at the hands of both the Jewish leaders and the Roman officials, we see that the disciples are anything but fine. They are confused, maybe even disillusioned. All of their hopes and their dreams for the future are upended as their rabbi of three years is taken from them. They're alone and they're afraid. You see, but Jesus wouldn't be alone. He had his father. I imagine that while Jesus is trying to prepare and encourage his disciples for what's to come, he naturally begins to talk with his father about all that's on his heart as they're they're walking and preparing. And then Jesus looks up. In chapter 17, verse 1, it starts, after saying all these things, Jesus looks up to heaven or looked up to heaven. For most of us, our prayer posture looks a little different than Jesus. We look more like this with our head bowed, our hands together in prayer. But Jesus lifts his head. And you see, this posture indicates the intimacy Jesus has with his father. Jesus also lifted his head to look towards heaven when he healed a deaf and mute man. Jesus lifted his head before the father when he raised Lazarus from the dead. You know you need to pay attention when Jesus lifts his head in prayer. So Jesus starts to pray, and he begins by praying for himself. He starts this. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you, give, you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life to know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, the one you sent to, earth, sent to earth. The hour Jesus is referring to is the time of his subsequent betrayal and crucifixion. This coming hour has been a theme throughout John's gospel, and now Jesus knows that the time has come when his father has led him to lay down his life for the sins of anyone who believes in him. This act is going to bring glory to the Father through the Son's actions on the cross. Jesus didn't choose to focus on this horrific suffering he was about to endure, but rather on the Father's plan of redemption so that we can all have eternal life with God. See, there is a process to follow to obtain eternal life. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It takes knowing someone. Not knowing in theory, For even Jesus' enemies know of him, but it takes having a relationship with Jesus to truly know him. 
But Jesus continues on in his prayer. He says, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the works you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. You see, while this is absolutely an intimate moment between Jesus and his Father, I feel the words of verse 4 here could be prayed by anyone following Christ. Jesus reflects on his identity here on earth, that he has accomplished the mission given by his Father, because we also share in that purpose. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states that our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, just as Jesus says here. And Jesus himself confessed this earlier in John's Gospel. In John 5.30, he said, I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. Jesus' will was God's will. He was glorifying his Father every step of the way. Why? Because this place was not his home. He had a purpose to why he was here. But he longed to go back home, to the place where the Godhead had existed for all of eternity. You see, about a month ago, Laura and I saw the contemporary Christian band Mercy Me, a concert at the Moda Center in Portland. They are one of our favorites, but one of their most popular songs is called Homesick. And so here's the chorus. It says, I close my eyes and I see your face. If home's where the heart is, then I'm out of place. Lord, won't you give me strength to make it through somehow? I've never been more homesick than now. Jesus is probably feeling homesick. His mission on earth was not pleasant from an earthly perspective. He had to don skin and bone, and he later, that would later be taken from him through acts of violence. You know, I, I often hear of Christians who are also homesick. They long to go to heaven because this world is not our home. The Bible in Ecclesiastes describes our life as a vapor. We have a short time here on earth, so we need to be just as missional as Jesus was. So as Jesus reflects on his life and he looks forward to the day he was back, he's back with his father he recognizes that the work isn't completed and it won't be completed without the work of the disciples that he spent so much time and effort pouring into. So he turns his prayer to them, starting in verse 6. Jesus continues to pray, I have revealed you, talking to the Father, to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you, for I passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that it came from you, and they believe you sent me. You see, even though Jesus, he deserves all the glory and all the honor, he turns his prayer away from himself and to his 11 friends who he had left everything to follow him. And Jesus acknowledges that his disciples were given to him by the Father to build up. And even in spite of their many shortcomings and faults, they had kept the word, which is the Old Testament scriptures of the Father. And they had also received and believed the word made flesh, God's very own son. 
And because of that, Jesus received them. And through this prayer, he presented them to the Father while personally vouching for their authenticity. See, Jesus had revealed the Father to them. And this was done by Jesus' very presence being around them. You see, early in John's gospel, Jesus had taught them if they had seen, if they had understood who Jesus was, they had also seen and understood God. You see, that's because Jesus and the Father, they are completely aligned. Outside of their form, they were indistinguishable. To quote theologian Charles Swindoll, to see the Son was to see the Father. Jesus continues in verse 9. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. Jesus is praying for his disciples. As a reason why God should bless them, he said that they were not of the world, that they had been taken out of the world, and that they belonged unto God. And even though Jesus is most directly praying for the 11 disciples, his prayer does have an application to all who come to faith in Jesus. To be clear, the one group for whom these prayers are absolutely not applicable to is to unbelievers, those who do not believe in the Son of God. You see, Jesus' prayer is not for the world, as the, world, the term world here as elsewhere refers to wicked, rebellious men, He's going to pray for the world later, but the emphasis for now is on those who believe. And so here, he petitions his father to protect and unify them in his absence. See, these petitions, again, they're applicable to any believer today. This protection Jesus is asking for is for spiritual protection. While Jesus was here on earth, he protected the disciples' spiritual lives with the power of the name of God. That's while he was here on earth. Today, as believers, we get to share in that kind of protection. We know that Jesus is reigning in heaven with his Father. But not only that, but we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us. You see, we have the best protection against the enemy's forces because death has been defeated. The victory has been won. And not only is it because of his power that we are protected, but it's because of his immense love for us. See, we're, we are precious in his sight. And this very prayer shows how valuable and loved we are. Whenever we feel alone or we feel abandoned by God, we know that while sometimes his love feels far away, his arms are always there. They are always open wide to us. Verse 12 during my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost, except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world, so they would be filled with my joy. Jesus had faithfully and carefully protected and guarded his disciples. But now it was time to place them into the capable hands of the Father. While they had their struggles with understanding, they had never strayed for the path of truth. Well, except one. 
Judas. He's the one who's mentioned here in verse 12 that is headed for destruction. You see, Judas was never lost because he really never believed in the first place. He was one of the 12, which was predicted by prophecy and was used by the Father to fulfill what was waiting for Jesus right after this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And while the disciples would have had comfort and be filled with joy later when reflecting on this prayer, we get the great privilege today to have joy here and now because of what John recorded in his gospel. Later on in the book of Acts, the disciples, they are horribly beaten, but they remain joyful. See, joy is not like a surface level emotion like happiness, but joy is this deep, meaningful way of a Jesus follower. And Jesus continues here in verse 14. He says, I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. So the word for hate that John uses here indicates one choice to give preference to one thing or the other. Uh, the, wor- the world has chosen, chosen worldly ways over God. And I think that's been pretty obvious over the course of human history. And Jesus says that the word of God is the way the separation happens because it defines each side. The Bible, the word, it, dis- it defines good and evil. And Paul later would go on to describe the word of God as a sharp, double-edged sword that divides. God, during the days of creation, declared the earth good. But sin, sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And this world now operates by the enemy's values, which are completely opposed to what God's values are. And while it would be easy for Jesus here to ask God to remove those faithful believers from a world now bathed in darkness... Jesus instead prays that they would persevere, that they would be protected from the influence of the world and thus the enemy, Satan. And in verse 16, we here are again compared to Jesus in his own prayer. We do not belong here any more than Jesus does. But while we are here, we are to be lights in the darkness, just as Jesus was. We have a mission. We all have a job to do. While we are here, we also have the spiritual protection of God. But how does God protect us? Jesus goes on to petition God to make us holy. In verse 17, Jesus prays, Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they could be made holy by your truth. You see, the protection from the evil one comes from God. A free gift of salvation comes through belief in God. And our holiness, that's an ongoing process. Right? Our works don't save us, but we are dedicated to becoming holy, to becoming like Jesus. And that is what Jesus means by being a holy sacrifice. He took on our sins, both past, current, and future sins, so that we could be holy. The holy living that follows is what we call sanctification. And we see the truth and live by that truth. That God is good and his ways are right. So Jesus, having prayed for himself at this point, and the success of his mission... 
And then he shifted his focus to these disciples, even though they're trembling in fear as they hear their Lord pray. He prays for their success and protection. And now the Lord is going to pray for all future generations of those who would believe, starting in verse 20. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. So today we see that here in this very room, we get a shout out from Jesus. Right? Well, when we read for all here, yeah, that's, that's us this morning. If you have a faith and you believe in Jesus, he has prayed directly over you. I think that's a super humbling experience. Before taking your sins and my sins, Jesus prayed over us. But not just us. Also, all who had come to faith through our words. In the continuous process of sanctification, our words will become more and more like Jesus' own words. He prays that those who believe through our words will also receive the benefit of his petition before God at this moment. By becoming one with Jesus, we become light bearers ourselves and we proclaim the truth to everyone and anyone. And in verse 21, he says, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. See, if you ever think something is important to Jesus, see if he repeats it. You see, in this prayer, he's already prayed for unity among the disciples, but now he turns his prayer for unity to us. Jesus prays unity here over three categories, that we should have unity in faith, in glory, and in obedience. Now, it's not just any old unity. It's a perfect unity so that the world will not be able to ignore the truth of the gospel. What is perfect unity, though? Do we all have to start wearing clothes from the 80s or driving a Prius? No, that would probably be a cult, probably a Portland cult, actually. <laughs> okay, so Christianity, to be fair, is not a cult. While I do buzz my hair and kind of dress like a dad, unity is not uniformity. Our faith has what I call like this vast number of tribes. While I'm preaching right now, all across Kaiser, Salem, and Oregon, congregations are listening and as pastors, all doing this very same thing that I am. Just because each of these church tribes may have its own different flavor of service and different theology on non-essentials, it is the love of Jesus that unites us as a global capital C church. Now, there are some very dangerous lies that do claim to be truth that we still have to be careful of. But personal preferences and minor issues should really do little to disrupt the unity of the church. Unfortunately, we are bad at unity. <laughs> Differences over non-essential doctrine threaten our unity of the church all the time. We get prideful in our own interpretation of scripture and we boast about it as if it was essential and we judge other tribes as if they were headed to hell when Jesus comes back. You know, I've even known churches even split over the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. We are bad at unity. 
The truth is that these non-essential differences between congregations really shouldn't threaten unity because of Jesus. Right? Jesus is the uniting glue that forms all these different broken pieces of pottery into a unified collage that displays a beautiful picture of love. It should be a lustrous picture of love that the world has no choice but to be in awe of the glory of God. So church, let us show the world that we are just as united with each other as Jesus was to his Father, so that the world will see the love of the Father on full display. In verse 24, Jesus continues. He says, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. So while unity was our Lord's first request, eternity is second. I just, I just love Jesus' caring language he's here. He, he, he says here, he says, I want them to be with me. How great is it that our Savior desires to be with us? He wants to show himself and the glory that he laid aside. He wants to show that to us. You see, Jesus put on flesh and dwelt with humanity. And I imagine that sometimes he had to suffer from like an achy back or tired muscles. But now, right now, he, is, he has regained his full glory just as he had in the beginning. And I can imagine that while in heaven, right, Jesus is, could, would come up to me and say, John, come over here and listen to this piece of music. It's the finest piece of music that you could ever comprehend. Or John, come look at this park that dad and I designed. Isn't this like the most relaxing place ever? While these are all in my imagination, the best parts of heaven, really the true, truly best part of heaven is Jesus's glory. Right? This glory is going to be unimaginable. When John writes the book of Revelation, he describes God's glory as the light in all of new creation. In verse 25, Jesus continues. He says, O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. Jesus here reinforces that the world doesn't know God. Again, the world knows of God, but they don't accept God's truth for themselves. But as believers, we know God because Jesus has revealed the Father through his very presence. We also know God because of the Bible. We gather every Sunday here to get to know God more through his word. Our job is to get people here, yes, but also to bring what we do here out into the world so that we can be light bearers. And the final line of Jesus' prayer is forecasting what's going to happen after Jesus ascends into heaven. Right before this prayer, Jesus had taught about an advocate that was coming. We know him as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is God, dwells in us when we become believers. He guides, he convicts, and intercedes on our behalf to God. And at the end of Jesus' prayer here in chapter 17, he prays for us. Those gathered, gathered in this room, those watching online, and fellow believers all around the world were prayed over by Jesus. He prayed for us to be in unity with God, just as he was in unity with the Father. That, that we are to look so similar to Jesus that we have as meaningful of a relationship with the Father as he had had. 
I find most important in this prayer is that we prioritize the things that matter most to Jesus. That's the glory of God, the protection of his believers, the sanctification, the unity of the church, and the ministry of spreading the will and truth of God. Not just to know these things, but to live them out each and every day through the process of sanctification. As children of God, we need to align our hearts with the priorities of God. That is how we grow in our relationship with him. So when you face an emotional or fear-filled situation in life, what do you do? Do you power through through your own strength? Or do you take time to ask guidance from your heavenly father? If our prayer life is any condition of our souls, what, are, what would our prayers say about us? Or what would they say about you? In the words of this prayer, we are invited to be as close to the Father as Jesus was. Not because of anything we've done, but because what has happened and what God did on our behalf. It was God who sent his Son into the world, and it was God who changed the world through his word. And because of God, we are called to go above and beyond what Jesus did on this earth. He said, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works, because I'm going to be with the Father. And as we consider this incredibly rich and important prayer, we need to remember that we are to be part of the answer to prayer from Jesus. Right? We have a responsibility not just to know, but to live out what Jesus prayed for us. The Bible says that we will all someday give an account of how we lived our lives here on earth. How great would it be if we could say what Jesus prayed in verse 4. Verse 4 again said, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So unity with the Father comes through the process of sanctification. So how have you been growing in your relationship with God? What has that looked for you? If you've been growing, that's fantastic. Please keep that up. But if you've had trouble trying to figure out where to start, the 201 Explore class is designed to help you identify where you need to grow next. Personally, I have been growing in my relationship with God. When I first went through the 201 class, it helped me to see that I really needed to grow in the area of giving. And thanks to that, I have like this greater understanding of what giving looks like for me. And I put practices in place to make sure that I continued to grow in that area. I'm also a part of an amazing small group here at Dayspring, which has continually supported me and challenged me to apply the scriptures to my life. We go through the study questions found in the bulletin. And I encourage you on your own or with a group to work through those. And you'll see the progress if you align your life with the will of God. You will. And if you aren't sure what even a relationship with God looks like, it's very simple. The Bible teaches that it takes belief. Belief and believe that you need a Savior to get you out of your sin and into the arms of a loving God who has a purpose for your life. So if today, if you're wanting to make that decision or if you made that decision, please let us know. In the room, you can always come talk to me or any of our pastors, or you can email us at info at dsf.church. If you're watching online, you can let the online host know, or you can also email us at info at dsf.church. So don't forget, after this message, you have homework. I know every time we do this. 
We have, we're covering around two chapters a week of the Gospel of John. So if you have time, we only, well, we only have time here to cover one. So please read chapter 16 on your own. So what does your life look like when no one is watching? Is your heart occupied with fear? Are you dissatisfied with your life now? What would it look like if you were as close and in unity with the Father as Jesus was? Let's pray. God, it is such a privilege to have such a deep and meaningful relationship with you that that's even an option. That God, you loved us so much that you sent your son to pay our sins. That God, you, you sent your son so that we could have that relationship with you. That we can go to you in our most emotional and distressful times. God, that we can go to you in the in the valleys and in the mountains. God, that when things are going good, that we don't forget about you, but we praise you because of your glory. So God, our prayer today is that as a church here locally, here in our, as ourselves, all across Oregon, all across the country, all across the world, that we could experience unity. That God, we had seen so much disunity. That God, we, we plead for that. And God, let us be in unity as Jesus was with you, to have that tight relationship that looks like nothing else, to experience your love. And so God, as we leave, let us be light bearers. Let us show what your love truly looks like to a world that is in desperate need of your love. As you, is in your heavenly name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the study questions by selecting watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions alone or with others will help the truth of God's word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you're on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.